Okay, once again, it's your favorite podcast. It's the Comic Historians slash Comic Code Authorities podcast with me, Bill Field, your host, Alex Grand, and of course, the inimitable Jim Thompson. Guys, how are you this week? We're great. Thank you, Bill. You're welcome. This week, we're going to go where no one typically goes before or after, and that's all the characters besides Marvel and DC in the mid-60s, which means we're going to be talking about the ACG characters, the Mighty Crusaders, the Captain Pureheart, and all the Archie characters, as well as Dell, and anything else we can think of in between. So we're going to start right off with the big ACG characters, which by big I mean Herbie, of course, the big fat fury, the big fat nothing, Herbie Popnecker. And strangely enough, the guy who created Zippy the Pinhead knew nothing about Herbie until I told him about him. And I don't know how he missed Herbie, but once he found out about Herbie, I mean, of course, Bill Griffith, he knew nothing about Herbie. He missed it because he was a hippie in the 60s and had bigger fish to fry than reading about the Fat Fury. So I want to know what you guys thought about Herbie and the ACG characters. Of course, Alex, you weren't even born yet, and I was barely <laughs> born. And Jim, you were slightly born. So I'm curious, Jim, what do you think of Herbie, Magic Man, and Nemesis. Well, I had no idea who Herbie was. I think that was a discovery later on. I wasn't aware of Magic Man either, but I did buy every issue when it came out of Nemesis. I was a straight Marvel and DC person, but there were these heroes and teams of this 65 to 67 period that were coming from other lines. And I would sample them. And Nemesis was my sampler for ACG ones. I, I do remember that on rare occasion, Fat Fury, Magic Man, and Nemesis would all actually team up. And and so I, I kind of knew who they were, but Nemesis was the one that struck me as the most interesting because he was suspector in a lot of ways, and that he was dead and he was solving crimes, but he had such a better attitude than uh, Spectre ever did. So it was it was fun to read. Later it became almost more like a combination of Spectre and Kid Eternity in that you had the, the friendly, heavenly presence juxtaposed against the devil, and it was sort of borderline uh, theological. It was goofy fun. I, I like those comics a great deal. Now, did the editor Hughes pretty much write most of those? Yes, he did. Even the superhero ones, correct? I believe so, yes. And Kurt Schaffenberger had quite a bit to do with the hero ones, as well as... Chick Stone. Whitney, uh, Ogden Whitney. They were the main people in charge of, of those comics. And not to mention the C.C. Beck's magnum opus three-issue run of Fat Man. Yeah, that's his magnum opus, absolutely, his crowning achievement. Well said, Bill. Well, not crowning. I mean, Captain Marvel really is. But <laughs> but fat characters were in in the 60s. I'm not really sure why. Do you know, Jim? Uh, why are you asking me? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> what are you trying to say, Bill? I, I'm on a diet. Why were fat characters popular in the 60s? Is that a true thing? Quite a few fat characters. In fact, are you talking about Herbie Popnecker now? There was Fat Man, who was created by C.C. Beck. Well, that, yeah, but who else? Um, you're five. The, uh, the member, the blimp. Okay. And there was Bouncing Boy for DC, 
And That's right. there, there was also Batman in Batman. He was like a comical Batman. So there seemed to be an inordinate amount of fat characters in the 60s. <laughs> now, Bouncing Boy, he married Duo Damsel. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Well, that was later during Cockrum's run. That's an interesting point that these fat characters had representation that maybe they don't have as much these days. It took two women to love that fat character, by the way. That's true. What a lucky man. He was. Well, he's so much smarter than Lightning Lad because if you can marry somebody who can read your mind or marry somebody that they can turn into two people, I think he's he's the brains of the Legion. That's right. Very smart. Very street smart choice. That, not necessarily book smart, but very street smart. Oh, my gosh. This is going so south, guys, so fast. <laughs> Jim and I were talking earlier. There was kind of two lines of Archie superhero characters. There was the Mighty Comics group, which was edited by Jerry Siegel and turned the fly into Flyman with some other characters, which then became the Mighty Crusaders. Then you have a whole other Archie line where they actually had Archie, Jughead, Reggie, as superhero characters with the Pure Heart series. Just a short correction, Reggie is not a hero. Right, he was a villain, that's right. Evil Heart. Yes, Pure Heart and Evil Heart. What do you think the Archie MLJ Comics company was, was trying to achieve with these characters? Well, superheroes were extremely, extremely popular in 66. In fact, they were nothing but popular. It, it was a huge superhero explosion, as it were, and uh, we're also talking about fat characters, so explosion, you, go figure. But you also had little Archie, little Reggie, and little Jughead all being superheroes as well and being the smaller versions of their teen characters. So you had little evil heart, little pure heart. What was, what was Jughead, Jim? I forget. Was he food heart? No, I'm just no, joking. He was Captain Hero. He had a magic incantation similar to the Green Lantern Oath. I don't even remember that. There was a little rhyme he had, a little poem, and he became a super guy. Bill, do you remember who the super villain is for Little Archie? And also when he was Little Pureheart, but uh, outside it, there was also a uh, a villain that haunted uh, Little Archie. Yes, Doctor Doom. Doctor Doom. That's exactly yes. right. And uh, Doctor, not not the Marvel one, of course, but a green kind of uh, ugly, evil scientist guy, and, oh, my gosh, I can't remember his uh, sidekick. What was his sidekick's name, Jim? No, I don't know. So Little Archie was also good at having, like, real kind of criminals, like, uh, almost like pedophiles or evil guys that, <laughs> you know, their There were no pedophiles. <laughs> I don't remember that part. There were some creepy dudes, though, that were... I mean, by today's standards, they'd be considered pedophiles. That darn comics code keeping the pedophiles out of comics, not fair. Gosh, why do they have to thwart us so? But, no, the Archie characters were also exploiting the hippie era, which a lot of the other superheroes weren't as much. So there were these groovy kind of, you know, villains and stuff, and it was all placated around the 60s kind of uh, summer of love kind of thing. Uh, although most of the Archie characters were gone by 1970, the superhero characters, that is. I don't know if you remember, but Moose, you know the jock football player Moose? Oh, yeah. Do you remember what his superhero character name was? No, I do not. Mighty Moose. Mighty Moose. Oh, my God, Mighty Moose. Hey, I'm here to save the day. Wait, where am I? That's a good impression, Bill. I'm impressed. 
Thank you very much. I, you know, Moose was. Was that an impression? I thought he was just talking. (laughs) (laughs) Man, Jim, guy with friends like you. We also have to remember there was the offshoot Captain Marvel who yelled split. Yes. Also, Plastic Man in that universe. And as soon as that two-year period ran up after those characters were canceled, DC and uh, Marvel both made sure that they swallowed up those names with characters immediately. So that's why you had Captain Marvel at Marvel, and that's why suddenly you had a resurgence of Plastic Man at DC. And then that turned into, of course, a big Plastic Man free-for-all in the 80s, uh, because he became a TV star, and there was even Baby Plaz. I love that cartoon. I actually grew up on that cartoon as a kid, believe it or not. That's frightening, Alex. Just a quick digression. My uncle was a huge comics fan in the 40s, and his favorite comic character was the Green Llama, strangely enough. So I had to hear, um, Padme, um, or whatever. The, I can't remember what his chant was, but I, my uncle would always recite that to me, and I had no idea what he was talking about until years later when I got my hands on some reprints of uh, Green Llama. He was my big mentor in comics, yeah. He was a big fan of Submariner, and he swore up and down that people truly uh, pronounced his name Submariner, And I went to Stan Lee, and I met met Stan when I was, like, 14. And I said, Stan, is it true you pronounce it Submariner? Who told you that garbage? No, but no, he wasn't the Submariner. He was a Submariner. Who told you that? (laughs) Bill, did Stan tell you that in the men's room? No, no. Had nothing to do with the men's room. Thank you, Alex. I'm curious. I just want to know more about your childhood impressions of comics and how you form heroes. Yes, yes, thank you. Thank you so much. So, actually, to touch up on Myron Fast, so just a little background on the Plastic Man, Captain Marvel, Splitsam character that Bill mentioned. Myron Fast, head of MF Enterprises, in 1966 started a Captain Marvel comic to ride the wave of the superhero glut that we're talking about in this episode. There was also a character that he had called The Bat, which did look like a poor man. Man's Tijuana version of Batman with a funny Silver Age costume, not very well written or drawn. What's interesting is DC did threaten Myron Fast with a lawsuit, and so he changed the name of the Bat to the Ray. So it turned into Captain Marvel versus the Ray, even though he still looked like a Bat character. I didn't realize that. Now, Fast was really well known for jumping on any bandwagon he possibly could to try to be a part of in any big wave. Like when the monster wave hit, he had a million monster mags. When the hot rod thing hit, he had a million hot rod mags. So he was known for this these kind of actions. Martin Goodman had similar actions like that, but for whatever reason, I still feel like the Myron Fast version of doing that feels more cheesy than the Martin Goodman version. Oh, hell yeah, because... The fast stuff was just horrible. (laughs) His artists were bad. His writers were even worse. It was just garbage as far as I'm concerned. I think a lot of people would probably agree. It seems that in the late 60s Silver Age, a lot of people, a lot of fans, when they talk about non-Marvel or non-DC, seem to bring up Wally Woods, Thunder Agents through Tower Comics, or the Charlton Superheroes under Dick Giordano and Steve Ditko. It seems that the Mighty Crusaders under Archie doesn't get brought up or talked about nearly as often. 
nobody actually remembers the Crusaders too much, although they should. And I mean, before we move on, just let me say that Alex Toth was was drawing uh, one of these, which was the fox. And it's beautiful Alex Toth work. So for anybody who doesn't understand just what he is, because he doesn't do a lot of superhero stuff compared to his other things, and he just nails it with the fox. It's it's great stuff. Now, the Mighty Crusaders did, by by the way, have a board game, and they also had action figures later on. So they did achieve some like commercial prominence that, None of the others that we're talking about did. Like Tower Comics did not have a board game, action figures, or anything. So Archie had that going for them. And they've also brought all those characters back in the last few years. I don't know. Have you? Have either one of you guys read the new Mighty Crusaders? Are you talking about the 1980s Red Circle stuff? What do you mean? No, I'm actually With the DC stuff. The, the, no, 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 no. Archie actually has brought them back as Red Circle titles in the last uh, five to ten years. Yeah, uh, they brought them all back as uh, the next generation, and they're actually well-drawn, and the stories were quite good. Now, something I wanted to throw in about the Mighty Crusaders is that the main writer for those was Jerry Siegel, and I think in a lot of those in the Mighty Comics group, which seemed to be trying to copy the Marvel Comics group, they tried to make those characters hip and relatable the way Stan was able to use with his dialogue, and it didn't quite register with readers. It only lasted a year, year and a half or so. Um, why, do you, why do you guys think it wasn't as successful as Stan Lee's version of it? Um, that's a good question. I think it's basically that... Stan tapped into the times more than anyone else seemed to. Yeah, I want to add, the Marvel characters that really kicked in in the 60s, apart from Captain America, were new characters of a new time. And you got to remember, all of these Crusaders characters and the, um, and the Ultramen, that was the other group, these are all reworkings of existing 1940s heroes. This is like their backlog that they brought back out. Marvel didn't do that. Marvel could have just re-released the Vision and the Angel and all, all of those 1940s timely characters, and they didn't do that, and that was smart. I think that's where Archie Adventure, as they become Mighty Comics, makes a mistake, is they just use a bunch of patriotic heroes. I mean, out of a dozen heroes, they've got both S.H.I.E.L.D. and Captain Flag in there. So it's a glut of World War II relics. And I think that's the distinction. Now, something I wanted to ask Bill specifically about is the Dell Comics uh, Universal Pictures Superhero Monsters. They had, each one had three issues. You have Frankenstein, Werewolf, and Dracula, and that was their version of turning these monsters into Silver Age-style superheroes. They have funny science fiction origins with the Frankenstein making friends with a millionaire and then being adopted by him and then inheriting his fortune and being a million a millionaire playboy who then fights crime. You have Werewolf, who was a CIA agent who spent some time in the wilderness with wolves and then now uses wolf talk to uh, eliminate the evil wolves that live in all men. And then you have the Dracula character, who was the descendant of Dracula, and some Bat-Blood experiment gave him vampire-like powers. Bill, why do you feel like those characters only lasted three issues? 
Well, number one, they had absolutely nothing to do with Universal. Universal had they they weren't connected to Universal at all. They were basically trying to rip off. See, the the two genres that were really big in the '60s were monsters and superheroes. So they thought they would merge the two of those, and they'd have this hot formula. Well, but they there again, they had piss poor talent creating the comics. The artwork was, it, I mean, this is just my own opinion. The artwork was horrible in those. And Dell, Dell did not have the level of talent that Gold Key did, although they were both put out by Western Publishing. And so Gold Key, however, all of their superheroes were, and we haven't even touched on those, uh, Gold Key superheroes were really pretty fantastic and became the variant. Heroes. You have Magnus, Robot Fighter. You have uh, Turok, Son of Stone, which is also a, a big video game franchise now. You had Solar, Man of the Atom, and these were all these were all comics that had painted covers as opposed to just uh, black and white and then colored covers. Uh, Beautiful also, covers. Beautiful covers. They it's probably the best covers of the '60s, wouldn't you say, Jim? No one else had painted covers. Stay with us. We'll be right back. My name is Koji, and I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mio. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. They had their, I mean, yes, if, if you if you want the painted covers, nobody did them um, the way they did. I mean, so, yes, George Wilson, George Wilson is, is a genius. His, his are amazing. Yeah. yeah. And, and they, uh, they utilized a lot of talent from Topps uh, Bubblegum, uh, who they had a lot of uh, uh, painters that worked on their line of, uh, like, Batman cards were huge in the 60s. Pa- they were paint- all painted. I believe those were by George Saunders, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and yeah. he was another one like Wilson that was, uh, that now everybody seems to know who he was, but back, back in the day, nobody knew who these guys were, but they loved the covers, they loved the stuff. So, Jim Shooter, when, uh, he got kicked out of Marvel, he took all the gold key characters and turned them into the, um, Valiant. I think I called it Variant a minute ago, but the Valiant universe. But they, the funny thing is, is that they're the ones who started the whole Variant cover. So Valiant started the Variants, so which we still have today, which has basically become a cottage industry of comic, comic, uh, uh, of the comic industry. But I think Dell just did not. Dell also had Tiger Girl, Alex, and a few other like one or two uh, issue superheroes that really went nowhere. 
One thing I wanted to bring up when you had mentioned that back then no one really knew George Wilson's name or Bob Saunders' name, it was the same with the Disney characters where no one really knew Carl Bark's name, but they called him the good duck artist. Going along that vein, there was also in the Disney comics um, Super Goof uh, as writing part of the uh, superhero Glut, and Super Goof uh, started in 1965 then uh, went on through 1965 to actually have his own comic line going all the way through to the 80s under Gold Key Comics, which you were just talking about. And some of those stories were actually scripted by Mark Evanier, whom we know. And again, I'd like to pick your brain. Why do you think that the Super Goof comics did so well as compared to other attempts to turn their other comics lines into superheroes? Well, you have Goofy, who's one of the best Disney characters of all time, We talked about these before, but you had the Mighty Heroes, and you had a lot of goofy superheroes in the 60s, and Goofy being like at the head of the head of the class. If I'm not mistaken, didn't he eat a hot dog to become Super Goof? Oh, Peanut. It was Peanuts. It wasn't, yeah. And then there was one uh, origin where Gyro Gearloos would give him powers, but his very first appearance, he dreamed he was Super Goof. So there was no real explanation in this first appearance. There are actually a few animated episodes of Super Goof now as well that Disney's done in the last few years, and the funniest the funniest version of which somebody throws away his Super Peanuts, and you see a trash, uh, a trash truck come by and pick them up, and suddenly the trash truck becomes a Super Goof, and the trash truck zooms off into space. Bill, you said Peanuts, right? Not, not anything else. Is that correct? Right, it was just pe- it was super peanuts. Yeah, I, I was thinking it was super hot dogs for some, but it had uh, Goofy ate everything, so uh, it had to be something food related. Now going back to that, of course, uh, Herbie's alter ego is the Fat Fury, and he had a myriad of different lollipops, and each lollipop would give him different superpowers, and um, that so. Uh, there were there were quite a few like food and Fat Man also was uh, he w- he was um, kind of a Epicurean uh, lover uh, foodie as we'd call him now but uh, so these guys all all revolved around food for some reason I I, I well, we thank we thank Popeye don't we yeah let's, yeah let's, well let's, Popeye let's thank Popeye for for that well yeah and, and Popeye of course is. Uh, considered by most everybody, and I believe you guys would probably agree with me, Popeye is the first actual comic book superhero. That's how I look at it. Well, technically, technically, Hugo Hercules in 1905, right, uh, in the Chicago Tribune, to me would be considered that. But I would say the first mainstream, interesting super character to me was Popeye, who was also a bit of an anti-hero as well. Yes, absolutely. He was an anti-hero, but not an anti-hero in what you think of today, like the Punisher or Wolverine. He was an anti-hero in that he was just a normal guy that didn't want to be bugged by stuff. You know, he, oh, I'm embarrassing, get out of my way. You know, he was just a normal guy that happened to have super strength and be able to basically beat everybody, you know, including Bluto, Brutus, uh, same guy, but different versions. And, uh, Sea Hag, and, and not to mention, uh, there were probably quite a few other, uh, 
supervillains that he fought, including large animals. Seeker was the best. He's so underrated, and yet, and did you know, did you know he died almost at the exact same time that Superman was introduced? And but let's, let's bring Popeye up to, like, the time period we're talking about, because he was a major player in the that first half of the 60s, uh, because there was a franchise-syndicated uh, children's show called Sailor Bob, and it, Sailor Bob showed Popeye cartoons. So, and, and, you know, and this has nothing to do with Seeger because, of course, that's almost a different animal. You've got the, the cartoon, uh, Popeye that's, that's eating all of the spinach and then becoming, you know, these incredible, um, action sequences, you know, with his arms twirling around and, and, and beating people up to the moon almost. Um, and, I posted uh, on our Facebook page a uh, image of Saturday morning cartoon uh, commercial for for '66, uh, an ad. Popeye was was even then uh, had his own own show on Saturday morning cartoons, so he was he was still an influential uh, character. Not when we're talking about with Seeger, but but actually in the '60s he was a big deal too. So when we're talking about characters who eat to get their powers. Popeye is the major influence right on in real time at that point. Well, you had King Features Syndicate, which had actually started an animated animation wing, which you had 60s Popeye cartoons, which by all critics basically will agree with me on this. They were the worst. They were horrible cartoons, and they were not the famous uh, Popeye or the... Uh, uh, Fleischer Popeye. They were just really bad, really low budget, and they they were followed by a Crazy Cat cartoon, a uh, Beetle Bailey cartoon, and um, I want to say there were a couple other King Feature characters. But what that became was that became the Beatles cartoon. The same people worked on the Beatles cartoon, and then that turned into the Yellow Submarine, which was the feature in the late 60s. So although the King Feature stuff in the early 60s were abysmal, it actually turned into something that, you know, was quite nice and, and quite quite unforgettable. And as a kid, I loved the, the uh, Beatles cartoons, and I was a huge fan of the Yellow Submarine. So there you, you have it. You know, that. Bill, I was at a, a convention, and uh, – Jerry Beck was showing uh, some old Popeye cartoons uh, the, of the period you're talking about. Um, I thought they were they were pretty great. I mean, it's it's an unfair comparison to do you know, compared to the Fleischers, but they were wacky in the in a oh, really wild way where 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 he would get in a rocket ship and go to the moon, and it was made out of cheese, and you know right. he would have speed uh, spinach and cheese together. You know, it was it was very strange. Uh, and whimsical in a way that you don't associate the uh, those earlier Popeye cartoons with. And, and not only that, Jim, but it was the first time we saw an animated sea hag, strangely enough. Ah. So, yeah. And and they used quite a few of the unused... They used the Professor character, which I can't remember his name. But, yeah, all of that stuff was really big. But there was, you know, there was never an attempt to actually make Popeye a superhero. Thank God. There was never really him in a costume in tights doing good for good sake, and I'm glad. I like the one-eyed, disgruntled, post-traumatic stress disorder sailor 
Barfly approach. I like that a lot more. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I, I, I really do. I really have to agree with that. Now, one thing we do have to touch on quite quickly, Gold Key uh, had the Super TV Heroes comics, which uh, featured, uh, which Mike Royer actually drew most of. I don't know if you knew that, Jim, but Mike Royer drew the adventures of the Herculoids, uh, Birdman, Space Ghost, um, et al., uh, Mighty Samson. Mike Royer, who was most famously Jack Kirby's inker in the early 70s on most of his DC work, he uh, was also the man who drew almost all the issues of uh, Gold Key's Hanna-Barbera's Super TV Heroes, which was the bulk of the superhero characters that uh, Hanna-Barbera was putting out in the late 60s. They showed up in this comic, and, you know, that it was a great comic. As a kid, I loved it. And uh, I believe I have all eight issues, too. Uh, but it was a great comic, and it strove to uh, actually put the comic into characters that were created to kind of be fake comic characters in the first place. One line I want to mention, and you did actually introduce that a bit, Bill, was King Feature Syndicate started to go after comic books, and they made King Comics for a while, and some pretty neat issues were the Al Williamson, Flash Gordon, uh, Flash Gordon's uh, comic books that he did, which were beautiful, and what I really liked about them is that, although it's not superhero, it is part of 1966, is the bringing back of the Alex Raymond style of Flash Gordon, almost ignoring the Mac Raboy sci-fi continuity, and making the Alex Raymond style in a modern way, I really love those Al Williamson issues. There were only a few of them. Did you guys like those? Yeah. I like them. I own a copy of number one, um, and uh, I, I love it. it. Number one was by far the best, I think, of the whole series. But uh, they also, um, they were, if I'm not mistaken, Jim can probably back me up on this. If I'm not mistaken, for the most part, the King Features comics were basically um, put together by the Charlton people, weren't they? Well, Charlton, and that's a good segue to the next line of characters that I know Jim will have a lot to say about, is that when King Comics failed, Charlton took over those characters and dropped their superhero line that uh, Dick Giordano and uh, Steve Ditko uh, started uh, by dropping those characters and going for those licensed King uh, feature syndicate properties. But before they dropped it for the King comics, they were doing their own superheroes as part of the superhero glut, partially inspired probably by Steve Ditko leaving Marvel and going to Charlton, providing his Captain Adam character, who uh, would later then inspire the Dr. Manhattan character from Watchmen. He also created The Question, the Ted Cord version of the Blue Beetle. Then there were some other Charlton superhero characters like Thunderbolt and uh, the Peacemaker. Jim, what, what's, what's your awareness of those comics? Well, just as a reminder, Captain Adam was pre-existing in that he uh, did co-did him in 1960 before breaking into the big Marvel moment. Jim, can you tell me what Steve Ditko's very first superhero comic book was? What issue? 
No, the Captain Adam would be my guess, but I, I don't know. You would be correct. It was Captain Adam's first appearance was actually Steve Ditka's very first, although he'd been in the comics industry for almost uh, 13 years at the time, it was his absolute first superhero comic. And so when he went back to that after leaving Marvel, it almost seemed like a perfect circle for him, although he went to D.C., Shortly after the period Jim's talking about, and Charlton picked up all of the King Feature characters. Now, uh, Jim, what, what do you think about Peacemaker, Thunderbolt, Judo Master? What do you think of these characters? One aspect we should think about in terms of where the uh, Charlton and the Tower actually come together, and partly with a little bit of Marvel, too, is the militarization of the uh, of the hero. These are people that work for the government as a rule, unlike traditional superheroes. All of the action heroes, you've got Captain Adam is military, not in a Captain America way, but in a working actively as a military. And Peacemaker, yeah. I'm a pacifist, I'm willing to kill for it. These are much more, and this is a Vietnam War era, so I think it influences it. I think this is a different thing because of that. And then Tower, uh, the combination of the James Bond and Man from Uncle success combined with nightly news about the Vietnam War is influencing these guys into being something different, and I think Charlton and uh, Tower are very much part of the same pie in, in that regard. I, I think that's good, and also Magic Man was also active duty military for the first part of it, and then he became a cop. That was one of the few series that pitted a superhero against the Viet Cong. And so next week, folks, we're going to be delving more in comic companies that we didn't have time to touch on this week, and that will, of course, wind up being Charlton territory, and that's some pretty cool territory. That features a lot of Steve Ditko, a lot of Dick Giordano, and it's really some beautiful stuff, and Pat Boyette. Jim uh, Aparo. And Jim Aparo. Aparo. You say Aparo, I say Aparo. With no further ado, we're going to get into our weekly rant segment, and we're going to start off this week with A, which would be Alex. So, Alex, what's your rant this week about what we've been talking about? One final thing I wanted to bring into the superhero glut was right after 1966, in 1967, the Blackhawk series, which was famous in the Golden Age for its art by Will Eisner and Reed Crandall, started to also prostitute itself a little by adopting a superhero aesthetic where they actually got superhero costumes. And what was silly, looking back at it, is that these comics that weren't doing too well, they thought, well, let's just make superheroes out of them. But something that's also kind of interesting about it is that there was a secret spy organization in that Blackhawk series, which was the organization of G-E-O-R-G-E, the Group for Extermination of Organizations of Revenge, Greed, and Evil. By having that, they also then try to bring in a man-from-uncle type of moniker into the Blackhawks by fusing the spy and the superheroes together, but it didn't really do too well. It only lasted 14 issues, and I thought that that was kind of a funny little piece of the Silver Age. Okay, and that leads us to Jim. Jim, what's your rant this week? Well, I just want to make a quick comparison between the different publishing companies of that time and the classic studio system where each of the studios in film had their own house style where you could recognize it instantly. And so when you have these groups of superheroes from the different companies in the 60s, 
they all have their own vibe, their own sense of humor, their own feeling to them that's separate and apart. If you took a few pages of any of them, you would know that's not a Marvel comic or that's not a DC comic. And it's really interesting. And I'd say, to some degree, that's lost today where I don't know that you can tell a difference in the same way with between a Marvel comic and a DC comic or even an image comic if it's a superhero comic there's a a sameness to it that I don't think was there in the uh in those early days uh where they actually had truly house styles well that's good Jim now my rant is going to be rather quick but I was always really upset that they didn't do more with the Hanna-Barbera characters back in the 60s now they're trying to make up for lost time now by DC doing the future quest and and comics of that ilk but they never really treated the Impossibles right. They never treated Frankenstein Jr. right. And it really irritated me as a kid because these were some of my favorite characters. And even Dell, Dell completely bastardized the Mighty Heroes. And they even made Strongman have dark hair for some strange reason. I think we might have touched on this last week. But these things are real irritants to me. And that's why I'm ranting and saying, why couldn't you guys have done it right for my three-year-old sensibility? Damn you. So that's really my rant of the week to wrap it all up. But as usual, I'd like to thank my cohorts in crime, Alex Grand. Alex, thank you very much. Thank you, Jim. And, and Bill. Jim Thompson. Yes, I'm, Jim and I look quite, quite a lot alike <laughs> if you forget our hairstyles and the fact that one of us wears glasses. But, uh, Jim, Jim Thompson, thank you for all your wonderful points this week. And, I'm going to uh, go I'm, eat some hot dogs now. See what it does for me. That's right. Yeah. You don't eat any peanuts though. You don't want to be a super goof. I'm just saying. So until next week, folks, and we touch more on these golden years of really bad superheroes for me and my two buddies i'm bill field signing off and we'll see you next week